Hello there, welcome to episode 75 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, the show for the website sittingnow.co.uk. Um, joining me this week is not who you expect, it's a returning character, someone that hasn't been on the show for quite a few episodes actually. Um, he's been shoulder barged by uh, Mr. Satir, shoulder barged out of the way by the uh, the eager beaver that is Mr. Satir. But we managed to we managed to dislodge him for a week, and uh, uh, Ulysses Black is rejoining us. How are you doing, sir? Well, I feel honoured to uh, to have this space. No, I'm uh, I'm great, and I'm really looking forward to this because uh, yeah, we followed uh, Andrew Collins's work for many years, and so it's going to be just fantastic to talk to him and unpack this new book that he's working on. Or that he's, that he's brought out, sorry. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking to Andrew Collins about his new book, Origins of the Gods, which is a kind of, it's a many-faceted book. It's actually Andrew Collins and a co-author, Gregory L. Little, um, but we're talking to just Andrew Collins today. Um, so, But yeah, it's a, I've, I reckon it's probably better if we just go straight into the interview and uh, and uh, yeah, see what cool. he has Sounds to say. Sounds good, can't wait, let's do it. You have this new book, Origin of the Gods, uh, co-authored with uh, Gregory L. Little. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and uh, give us kind of sure. an overview? Yeah. Um, the book basically looks at not simply the idea of UFOs or aliens or ancient civilizations, but it's looking at the concept that since the beginning of humanity, there has been some kind of intelligence that's been behind everything uh, that has been slowly nudging us in certain directions, uh, an intelligence that we don't think is extraterrestrial in nature, but is more likely to be transdimensional um, and may well have been affecting our ancestors for at least 400,000 years and arguably early since the foundation of shamanism, uh, which takes place at a place called the Kezem Cave uh, in Israel. Um, where incredible discoveries have been made in recent years to do with the origins of shamanism and the fact that this community uh, became the most advanced on the planet at the same time that they were invented that they were inventing shamanism and very clearly there's a link between the two um, and you know how does this link with the idea that shamans, are able to go into otherworldly realms and otherworldly intelligences to connect with, you know, beings and things like that, which could well be providing us in a slow drip feed basis with information that could have helped evolution and through that, obviously, the rise of rise of civilization. Mm. Interesting. I, I remember um, John Keel. Um, talking about uh, this kind of ultra terrestrial kind of uh, you know uh, experience, he, I think it was on the Mothman prophecies, wasn't it? He um, he he wrote about this quite a, a fair bit. But I also noticed in your book that there was um, a few references to John Keel. We're, we're kind of quite big fans of Keel here, and I was wondering what kind of influence would you say Keel had on your kind of work and maybe even this book? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, I read Keel books in the seventies, um, and. You know, they were a cut above the rest in the sense that, you know, it was okay reading pulp paperbacks about UFO sightings and aliens coming here or ancient astronauts or whatever. But the thing that Keel did 
is he showed you that, yeah, all this was happening, but that it wasn't as easy as simply pointing towards the sky and saying the Space Brothers are coming down. Um, you know, the whole thing was related to paranormal phenomena, to weird people turning up, you know, during investigations, to cryptids, to quite obviously all of the activity that was going on at Point Pleasant during the 60s. And, you know, this had a deep impact on me and on Greg Little. And when Greg and I first got together um, in the early 2000s, one of the first places that we went to as a pilgrimage, as it were, was Point Pleasant, you know, to have a look at the the metal mothman in the middle of the town um, and to pay our respects and also try and talk to as many people as possible, just, you know, people we came across about their own memory and experiences of mothman you know, which was very re rewarding because we found uh, cases which nobody had ever come across before, uh, including the fact that Mothman was actually seen on the Silver Bridge shortly before its collapse, um, which may be an apocryphal story, but it's a good one at least. Um, and beyond that, you know, we were told that it was quite clear that Mothman did cease to, um, you know, to put in an appearance after the collapse of the Silver Bridge, showing that there must be a relationship between the two. Um, and that, you know, some people have suggested that Mothman may have caused the Silver Bridge collapse, but others, and I, and amongst myself, believe that it's very possible that the appearances of Mothman was actually trying to warn us that there was a disaster, an imminent disaster uh, about to occur. Uh, and beyond that is the fact that, you know, I was able to meet John Keel um, during the 1990s. And there's a picture in the book of, of Keel and I together. So, you know, there's no question that his work seriously influenced um, what you will read in Origins of the Gods. Mm. Yeah, it's very. Um, we also uh, had a guest on a couple of times, um, uh, Alan Greenfield, and he has this kind of oh, yeah, yeah, inter yeah. <laughs> interesting kind of uh, hypothesis that, um a kind of occult activity and ufos are linked you know that by performing rituals you're kind of um there's some kind of there's like a dynamic link between occult ritual and uh ultra terrestrial activity it does have you ever looked into that i mean the book kind of looks into that to a degree it does it? yeah i mean at the end of the day whether you call it occult witchcraft magic ultimately it's all the same it's all about exerting human consciousness you know on a desired um, you know, effect or result or particular theme. And, you know, as we know from quantum um, science, you know, the observer effect or the observer principle will change outcomes. So quite clearly, if you're focusing on something, you know, doesn't matter what type of ritual or spell you use, you know, you are having an impact, um, you know, in the greater world, the outside world. And this can result quite clearly in sightings or experiences to do with what Kiel referred to as ultra-terrestrials. You know, um, I mean, you've only got to look at people like Anthony Shields, you know, the, the monster raiser um, who did these rituals on the side of um, Loch Ness to try and raise Nessie, and, uh, you know, with his daughters. Um, you know, and he got, you know, incredible results, if we're to believe him, uh, simply because he, he realised that there was a way of conjuring into existence, you know, cryptids of that type. And, I mean, quite clearly that's not what most people would do. But if you go to somewhere where UFOs, cryptids or paranormal 
events take place, then by simply thinking about that, you are interacting with it and you are more likely to have an experience. Whereas quite clearly, if you go and stand in your local superstore car park, the same thing's not going to happen because you are not going to feel that same link, that same connection with that place. And it's the same with what John Kill used to refer to as window areas and today are referred to as portals. That These are places where strange phenomena will occur on a regular basis. And this may well be to do with the geology of the area, you know, the particular type of environment, you know, what's going on there uh, from a human perspective. But, I mean, quite clearly, if you go to such places, you are, you are more likely to interact with this phenomena than you are, you know, somewhere that, that's not a portal, you know, because it's a belief factor. In my opinion, as much as 50%, of all types of interaction are caused because of what we call human consciousness interaction. Do you think then um, that these uh, portal locations could be sort of stimulated into existence by modern practice or are they just a sort of an, an archaic thing that has been around for a long time and they're the ones that people can sort of access through? No, I mean, you can do whatever you want. I mean, if, if, if you wanted to stick bananas in your nose in the belief that, you know, that would conjure up a particular spirit or entity, then it will work. You know, you do not have to go back to the medieval grimoires to, you know, to, to, to achieve that type of interaction. Um, you know, simple meditation uh, could achieve just a strong effects, provided that you actually believed in what you were doing. You know, that's the important thing. And, I mean, people like chaos magicians, you know, have a way of utilizing, um, you know, the very subtle parts of the brain to create results magic, if you like, um, which works just as well as anything that you will find in any spell book or any grimoire. So, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter what you do. It's about belief in the fact you can do it or that there's every possibility that something will happen. It's not going to guarantee that something will occur or you'll get a sighting, um, but it will certainly help along the way. And the problem is, is that we are probably dealing with entities that are not just sentient, but are incredibly advanced um, and see us, you know, the equivalent of the way that we might see ants in an anthill. And to attract their attention or to make them perform is something which is, not easy in, in many ways. Um, and I think that what happens is that they become aware of your presence and they will react to that presence if they want to and only if they want to. It's not an accidental thing. It's quite purposeful. And it also only happens when they feel they want to do it, when they want to trigger something, you know, either inside yourself, inside the people that you're with, you know, or for a certain long-term purpose. It's what we call, you know, like a trigger event. Um, and once that trigger event has occurred, it almost exists in plot, time and space, and in many ways always has done, because you're dealing with something that's probably outside linear time. So in other words, if an entity, you know, does make contact with you or does, uh, you know, appear in some manner, then quite clearly it, this is something that, not just is pre-arranged, but it's something that extends across time, not just in the present moment, 
but it's happening in the past, it's happening in the future. And it's the same with a UFO sighting. You know, when you see a sighting, often people say, you know, I felt a connection with the phenomena that I was I was looking at. And they forever feel that that connection has long been there, but they were just waiting for that opportunity, that moment that they knew was going to happen. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to get it to recreate. Um, I mean, all right, you know, they do other things as well. They become very creative in, in many different ways. But it's almost as if that trigger event is something that's always been with them. And the reason for that is that we may well be dealing with what we call transdimensional intelligences that exist outside of normal space time, probably in a higher dimension environment that very clearly has no bearing on our concept of, you know, time running just in one particular direction forward. It's fascinating. Um, I think we we do really want to get onto the subject of the the end beings that you mentioned. But just before we do, just if I could just sort of hover on this portal point a sort of moment, would you think then from the way that you're describing it that those places that are kind of uh, power places that conform to this nature that are kind of almost permanent places, are they? would they be somewhere where one of these sort of trigger moments has happened at, or, or will happen at some point, and that's kind of fixed that location, sort of resonating through time, whether it's yeah. going to happen in yeah. the future or it happened ages ago, but there was but some something effectively touched our realm, as it were. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the case. I mean, the one thing that's in common with well, I would say every port location in the world is that it has certain types of geology. Um, and most usually that relates to tectonic um, stresses and strains inside the earth. Um, the presence of fault lines, micro faults, micro, um, you know, tectonic activity, as well as certain types of minerals, most obviously those that will create electricity in rocks. Uh, such as uh, quartz, tourmaline, you know, and other similar rocks. And what happens is that when they're put under extreme stress, which happens a lot, um, they will release, you know, limitless amounts of electrons, which break the surface and form what are known as electron bursts. This is, you know, a term that's that's used in science. And this in turn creates what they call ionospheric environments. This is where a lot of the atoms are split apart um, into either um, the nu their nuclei or their um, or, or electrons themselves, and that these will be positively or negatively charged. And yeah, this takes you out of atomic matter into what is known as ionization or ionized gas, or more you know more uh, esoterically more into plasma. And plasma is the fourth state of matter. And it's something which is usually only generated under extreme uh, temperatures, probably as much as 200, sorry, 2000 degrees C. Um, however, it would seem that under certain circumstances, it can be generated in other ways as well within the landscape. And it can produce um, quite literally objects that suddenly burst into uh, appearance, almost like light bulbs being switched on. And what these will consist of is essentially, um, elect yeah, well, ionization, which would take, which would be positive ions, which is generally the nuclei 
um, and the negative ions which have been freed up. And those negative ions become so excited that not only do they bump into other uh, atoms to get them to release their electrons, so the whole thing becomes quite imbalanced as far as, as the atom is concerned, but also that it that this creates the release of photons or packets of light, you know, and uh, suddenly you have this object in front of you that is, uh, well, quite literally, an, you know, an, an object of light. I mean, it can be referred to as a plasmoid or a plasma construct. And, you know, this can be very small. It can be very large. It can be a collection of lights. It can be pretty solid because it will also um, hold quite a lot of dust as well. It can be seen on um, on uh, radar, but more importantly, it can act in a sentient way. This is something that's been seen, you know, countless occasions relating to the observation of mysterious lights all over the world. But it's also something that's very specifically associated with plasma environments. Um, as early as the 1960s, David Bowen, um, you know, studying plasma came to the conclusion, something that many others would do afterwards, that plasma seems to act as if it is alive. It seems to organize itself like the cells of, of a body. And in fact, plasma itself actually gained its name um, because of this these very actions. I mean, before it was called plasma, um, it was called um, radiant, oh, God, I've forgotten now, but anyway, uh, radiant matter, that's it. And this was discovered in the 19th century by a scientist named William Crookes. Um, and he played with it for many years. You know, he showed it in displays within vacuum tubes. But, you know, once plasma physics started really getting going in the 20th century, they changed its name, obviously, to plasma. And, you know, we've been studying plasma ever since. But the other important thing about plasma is that there are various theoretical physicists who have come to the conclusion through quite a lot of experimentation, mathematics, and observation, that plasma may well help create within it an extra dimension of space so that it actually has four dimensions of space and one of time. Uh, and if that's the case, and obviously I, you know, the references for this are, are in the book, um, if that's the case, then it provides the opportunity to link into higher dimensional realms that could coexist with us. In other words, the plasma itself can act as a conduit, you know, quite literally a portal or a doorway into higher dimensional existence. And the key to this is the fact that in the mid-90s, string theory was united under a concept known as M-theory, which brought together five different, um, you know, different theories to do with it. And the upshot of all this was the concept or the prediction of a realm existing out of normal space-time that was referred to as the bulk, and that the bulk pre-existed the physical universe, and that our physical universe blew up almost like a balloon, you know, gradually expanding within what might be perceived as a vacuum, although it wasn't because it, it, it was a, a, an environment that, that pre-existed. And as it expands, it's, it, it expands with its own particular laws of physics, which obviously, you know, involve 
three dimensions of space and one at a time until it reaches the size that the, the universe is today. Now, those that support the concept of M-theory talk in terms of these physical universes being what they call brains, B-R-A-N-E, or brain worlds. Um, and the idea is that there could be more of these brain worlds and that if there are, they could not only have their own laws of physics, but that they could coexist with our own. In other words, they could either touch our own or they may overlay our own, either partially or wholly. And if that's the case, then plasma itself could act as a conduit into coexisting brain worlds. Um, and that raises all sorts of possibilities because if you know we perceive these brains as, let's say, parallel worlds or parallel universes, then quite clearly you might be able to get a transfer from one into another and vice versa. In other words, what we consider as cryptids or strange creatures of time and space, as John Keel referred to them, could actually be coming you know, into this realm, either via plasma environments or ion ionospheric fields, you know, that are generated through these electron bursts. And if that's the case, then, you know, we, we have a working model for why cryptids and obviously other types of weird stuff take place at portal locations. But this is not to say that portals are the only places where strange things will occur. I mean, clearly not. But it's a percentage factor. It's if you were at a portal location, the percentage factor of something weird happening increases dramatically. But quite clearly, that percentage factor still exists outside of a portal location. It just decreases in what that factor is. And I think that a lot of reality is about, you know, um, you know factors, basically. In other words, um, highs or lows. Is it 10%? Is it 70%? Is it 90%? You know, and as I said, a lot of this is to do with human consciousness interaction. What do we believe? You know, when we go into a portal area, if we believe that this is somewhere where mysterious lights will occur, could the, our pure presence and observation help generate that activity? It's interesting. So, I mean, would you say that, uh, I mean, in the book you refer to this as N, N beings? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, are you talking about uh, like cryptids and, and you know that kind of thing? When you when you I mean, could you define what an N being is then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there is a you know a realm called the bulk, which is eleven dimensions, um, which is you know what what is predicted, then quite clearly we exist in a three dimensional realm of space, one dimensional realm of time. Plasma could be four dimensions of space, and if it has got a time dimension with it, the chance chances are it may not work in exactly the same way as ours does, as it were. Um, and in an 11-dimensional environment, it's, you know, it's completely different, almost certainly. But if there is intelligences that are behind these UFOs, and when I say behind these UFOs, what I mean by that is that they can inhabit plasma environments or ionospheric fields, then who are they? Where do they come from? Now, I don't see any real evidence personally that they're extraterrestrial. Now, I'm not saying that they are not able to reach out into the cosmos, just that their presence here is not good evidence of them being aliens in the, in the sense of the word that we 
would understand. In other words, flesh and blood beings. Um, but their intelligences. And if that's the case, then is it possible that they exist in a higher dimensional realm and are able to interact with us through plasma environments and other similar ionospheric or electromagnetic fields? I think that there's quite a, a high chance that that is the case. So the term N beings is the shortening of N dimensional beings. The N standing for number, as in we don't actually know how many dimensions may be involved. It could be 11, it could be, you know, five, it could be 22, it could be 32. We don't actually know. I mean, we're only going by the theories that we've got at the moment. And I think that from my own point of view, you know, M theory is probably one of the best ones that we have that could try and explain these. But cryptids themselves, I think, are reality hoppers. I mean, they're coming in from somewhere else uh, into our world. They are doing their thing for however long they're here, which could be a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks. And I think that what happens is that we, we do coexist with other brain worlds, but they don't just overlay with ours, or partially at least, but the, I think they shift back and forth. In other words, they move. And when they overlay with us, then these cryptids can uh, quite literally walk through you know, doorways such as plasma environments. But when that brain world shifts away from our own, as I believe may well be the case, then it drags and takes away whatever is a part of its own world. In other words, if cryptids were here doing their thing, hunting or frightening people or whatever, they would be dragged away out of our reality as that brain world separated from ours. And this wouldn't be a case of you'd see them suddenly go through some doorway of light. They just would cease to exist here anymore. And I think that, you know, that is a possibility. In other words, you know, we're not seeing them coming in and out of a doorway of light or something. Yes, plasma, I think, is a, a factor which may allow them to get in. But I think that getting out may be a case of when a brain world shifts, it shifts out of synchronization with our world and they will cease to exist. We will no longer see them, even if they're overlaying the same location. We will no longer see them. Do you think then that... Um sort of following on from that that various of the practices of the shamanic cultures and so forth that uh that they're that we've got sort of magical practices for want of a better word that help um guide those uh brains back into alignment um or sure. is it matter or are we looking at a sort of what we might well, have that's a big one gone. i mean you know the idea that we might be able to shift brain worlds uh, is is a big one, and I, I, I currently have no uh, logical answer for that. It's possible, it's possible, but I think for the most part, obviously, we can affect anything in our own brain world, um, probably for the most part through observation. I mean, remember the whole concept of, of, you know, the observer's effect or the observer principle is that, you know, if you do an experiment, then if you observe it, it's going to change the result. And, you know, this is just an accepted fact of science. So quite clearly, if you are dealing with um, 
the concept of entanglement, which is something we've not talked about yet, the idea that particles can become twinned and can then create whole systems of entangled particles that can affect the macrocosmic world. In other words, you know, some of the some some particles in my head might have a twin in your head, and if those in my head are doing the same dance as the ones in your head, then that's going to be a transfer of information, possibly even of, of energy. Now, if that is taking place between us and the environment within, um, you know, iosphenic, iosphonic, oh, sorry, iospheric fields and even plasma, you know, because plasma for the most part is going to be taken up out of, um, of, of negative ions, which are electrons, and our whole body is essentially made up of, of, of ions doing their own thing. Um, then, you know, the entanglement between us and the phenomena is something that could easily be taking place as soon as we actually have observation, eye contact with it, or we are in the right place where this phenomena has occurred before. And as I said, this could be more obviously something like a portal location. You know, I mean, it's like if you go to Skinwalker Ranch, which is somewhere I went to, um, you know, during the preparation of this book. I mean, you know, you just get there and you just have this sense that anything could happen at any time. Now, I don't feel that when I go to the local Tesco's. I don't feel that at all. But I felt that at Skinwalker Ranch. Now, that could purely have been a psychological effect. But the sheer fact that you feel that way means that you increase the percentage factor of some type of activity taking place. So even though you're not observing it, you're observing the right environment and you're in the right environment for you to be affecting what is actually taking place. And, you know, as you'll read in the book, I mean, you know, my visit to Skinwalker Ranch was, um, you know, was, was, was pretty weird. Um, I mean, I was only there for a couple of days and I met various of the people that, you know, that you, that you see on the TV show, but also many other people that were working on the ranch that had no interest whatsoever in UFOs or not actively at least. And yet virtually everyone that I spoke to had their own um, accounts of, of weird things that they'd seen there. You know, they would just openly talk about them. Some of them had seen more than one, you know, object. But what was interesting is that they that the main place that they seemed to see things was over the so-called Northern Mesa, which is on the north side um, of the ranch. And if you look at that, you'll find exactly the geology that you would expect to find. There's a fault line that, that crosses through it. Um, it's made of a sandstone, which obviously is a very high um, content of quartz, which is, you know, not only generates electricity, but is able to um, allow the flow of electricity from high to low um, potential. Um, but also that quartz also powders um, as it, you know, comes off of the, um, you know, the cliffs of the Mesa. And it forms this really fine sand that covers the whole area. And you have to wear scarves there so that it doesn't get into your throat. And it's quite nasty stuff, in all honesty. Um, and yet we know that sand also generates, the movement of sand also generates electricity. And electricity at the, at, at the end of the day is simply the movement around of electrons. Um, so you've got exactly the right type of environment to create a portal location. 
And although a lot of the guys there, as you see on the television show, are doing all sorts of weird things to try and work out what's going on there, there are actually a few, you know, simple factors here. The geology is correct, plus the actual, um, from a historical point of view, the local Ute uh, tribe have been seeing weird stuff on that northern mesa, which they call the path of the skinwalker, for the last 150 years at least. Um, and this is something that they've been interpreting in terms of a skinwalker. Now, the skinwalker ultimately is simply the supernatural form of a shaman or witch of the neighboring tribe of the Navajo that is the form that they will take in a trance state, often to curse people. Now, one of the primary forms that the, um, the, the, the Navajo shaman or witch takes is that of a witch, uh, sorry, a witch, um, of a wolf. And the interesting thing is that the word for wolf and witch in Navajo is essentially exactly the same. Um, so, you know, quite clearly the wolf was an incredibly important shamanic animal to the Navajo. And so basically the Ute, who, I, who, basic, who had uh, wars and battles with the, 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 the Navajo back in the 19th century, I think that in many ways the fact that they took over Skinwalker Ranch, which prior to this time had been almost like a no man's land where, you know, sacred activity would take place. There's sacred sites on it. There's rock art, there's caves, all the rest of it, which unquestionably formed part of a ceremonial landscape in the past. The fact that they were seeing what they interpret as skinwalkers, um, I think is almost a sort of guilt thing, really, that, you know, they fear that they were put under a curse by their neighbours for the bad things that they did during these wars. Yes, it's fascinating. I think when, what you were just saying about the quantum entanglement sort of makes me think then about, um, you know, the stuff that's, that's sort of coming out about the, the hitchhiker and things like that, that, that affect people leaving the ranch, taking something with them. And that idea that if, as you said, some, something gets sort of quantumly entangled, then even if you leave the space, you might still be carrying uh, well, a connection I mean, with it. There's an easy answer for this. I mean, if, if you go on holiday to a certain place, you know, and you come away from there and you close your eyes, you're going to see that place for the next, you know, day or so. And that's going to be linking you through entanglement with that particular landscape. And it's the same with somewhere like Skinwalker Ranch. I mean, I'm sure that the guys, when they go back to their hotels or wherever it is that night and the night after that, all they're going to do when they close their eyes to see Skinwalker Ranch. So it's almost as if you are still there. So that entanglement still continues. And with these hitchhikers, I mean, although some of them I'm sure say they, they linger for much longer periods, but I think you'd find that for most of them, this activity will cease after a day or so. And I think this is important. You know, I mean, it's like simply by concentrating on a particular site, let's say, you know, Avebury or Stonehenge, I mean, just as somewhere that people would recognise, you know, you are affecting that site on a, on a subtle level. I mean, it's probably so subtle that nobody would ever realise what was going on. But you can do that, I think. And, you know, if these sites do have entities connecting with them, which I believe they are, I mean, obviously the old concept was that every sacred place had what was known as a genius loci, which means the spirit of the place. In other words, it had its own personality, its own intelligence, its own entity, which could take on 
uh, an archetypal form, whether it be a spirit of the past, a mythical character, or maybe a you know a fairy-like being, or even an animal. Um, you know, they then represent that site. You know, so that if somebody goes there and has a vision or a dream or a psychic experience, that's what they will they will most obviously see, even if they don't know what is actually there. I mean, and I like to refer to these entities as egregores. Um, and the term egregore, I think, is is very good. In other words, it's like a an entity that absorbs human interaction so that, you know, the next person that comes along will essentially be able to communicate with it based on what others who have been there before have believed the personality of that particular entity is. And if this has been going on for not just, you know, a few hundred years, but many thousands of years, you know, you're dealing with incredibly powerful egregores that are not associated, let's say, with a single stone circle, but entire areas. I mean, at Skinwalker Ranch, for instance, the the guys there believe that, you know, you're dealing with a single entity. They don't believe that all the cryptids and all the lights and all the weird things that turn up are all separate. They believe that there is a single entity there. And amongst the names that they give to it is the host. And I find that really, really interesting because exactly the same term was given to me about the you know the 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 entity present in the area of Bempton in Yorkshire, which is uh, by my colleague um, Paul Sinclair, who's the lead investigator, written several books on the phenomena that's taken place there, Bempton in Yorkshire. He also has termed it the host. It's almost as if it's an entity that's omnipotent, om- omnipresent, and knows you. It knows when you're there. It knows what you're doing and it will appear or do something when it wants to do it. And so to me, the term egregore, I think, is very important. But also, if that's the case, then we have to accept the possibility that the ancients were aware of very similar egregores existing in landscapes, particularly in the vicinity of portal locations in the past. I mean, for instance, the megalithic sites around Britain um, most of the main ceremonial complexes were all constructed by the same culture. And this was the Grooveware people who begin their journey from the Orkney Islands about 3000 BC. And they go, you know, you find them and their particular type of pottery, earthenware, um, at places like Avebury, Stonehenge, um, around Bempton, Bridlington in uh, the East Riding. Um, also in places like um, Anglesey, even in Ireland, and, and many other places aside. And what's so interesting is that every single one of these sites is associated with UFO activity, paranormal activity, and cryptids. And I, I just find that fascinating. Is it possible that the Grooveware culture were aware that there were certain locations and would actually build their stone and earth monuments, you know, to quite literally connect with these entities that existed in the landscape in the past. I think the answer is yes. I mean, there's a lot of evidence for this. And uh, uh, I think it's a very fascinating subject. But even then, I think that 
this had some this was something that had been building for tens if not hundreds of thousands of years i go back to the kezeb cave in israel because at the same time that the people there were becoming the smartest um you know uh, communities on earth and also writing the book on shamanism um just on the horizon was a mountain called mount gerasim now mount gerasim plays an incredible prominent role in the early chapters of the bible sorry the early books of the bible particularly the book of genesis where it's said to be the mountain of god the sole dwelling place of god himself and it's also known as the the gate to heaven the gateway to heaven um and it was here that all the early patriarchs came like abraham isaac um jacob and you know to have mystical experiences you know to to become aware of the presence of god you know on this this mountain and what's so interesting is that there's still a religious community on the mountain there today called the samaritans now they claim to be the direct descendants of the original israelites and what's so interesting is that the mountain is well known for mysterious light phenomena both historically and in more modern times so when i went to the kezem cave in 2019 I crossed over from Israel into the Palestinian territories the the, the West Bank uh, and climbed um Mount Gerasim and I found the the highest ranking priest that I could and I said to him you know tell me about these lights I mean are they still seen today so oh yes absolutely I said you know how are they interpreted and he just said malak malak which means angels so you know this samaritan community you know when they see these lights well, I say they I mean anybody that the visitors to the mountain they are interpreted as the presence of god's messengers which i find really interesting it's almost like something out of an ancient astronaut book you know that that they still see them as angels and i, I, I that to me that's that very curious the other interesting thing is that in samaritan holy books it refers to the manner that god manifests on the mountain there as he his presence is known as the shekinah the shekinah is a term that's universally used within those texts to refer to you know not mysterious lights but blinding light you know like god appearing as light just like moses encountered um yahweh on mount sinai or on mount horeb the same thing is there on god's own mountain that where he's supposed to dwell and very clearly i think that a lot of this starts with people seeing these strange lights and coming to the conclusion that this is the manifestation of the god of that mountain and there's no question that the yahweh worship probably originates with much older Canaanite worship of gods of mountains such as El and Baal that preceded the arrival of the Israelites by probably at least 1000 maybe 1500 years you know and those gods were seen to live on the top of mountains often it was suggested they even lived in tents you know like tabernacles up on the top of the mountain so you know the concept of the mountain itself being alive being an entity being a god itself may well have generated the earliest beliefs 
in the worship of, of Yahweh. And I believe that there is a possibility that the Kezen people may well have seen these same lights going back as far as, as 400,000 years, and that that's what attracted them to this mountain where they would actually take the local flint from the actual mountain to make their stone tools. Now, this was despite the fact that they had you know, quite adequate, high-quality flint very close to the cave, which they could, they could have used. So why did they go to the mountain to get their flint? And the answer, I think, and this is, again, this is a universal concept, is that the, the mountain was seen to have a power, an energy, an intelligence in its own right, and that by taking away its rock, it imbued you with that same power, you know, perhaps to make you successful in the hunt or to use that rock as points of contact with otherworldly realms and intelligences. Um, and, uh, you know, that's exactly what they were doing. And uh, they enhanced this through the, the creation of shamanism, which may well have come through these otherworldly contacts. Like, how are we going to make it easier? Well, let's take the form of, a, of, of an animal. In the case of the Kezeb cave, it was a swan because they, the archaeologists there discovered uh, a, a swan bone, a wing, you know, the, the most powerful bone of a swan that's used for flight that was put in a particular space in the cave that, that essentially was a holy of holies. And, you know, other, at least one other item that had a religious significance was also found there, which was a stone ball made of flint, multi, multifaceted stone ball. Um, and that this bow was unquestionably, as far as the archaeologists are concerned, they've written papers about this, um, used in shamanic rituals. So, And this becomes the earliest evidence anywhere in the world for shamanic activity. Much later, the same wing bone was used by different shamanic cultures um, in, you know, uh, Central Asia, for instance, Eastern um, Eastern uh, Asia, you know, Siberia, etc., but also in Europe as well during Mesolithic times. So we know that the idea of shamans using these wing bones, almost as substitutes for the whole bird, to make that link with the spirit of the bird so that they could actually become that bird, so that they could take the flight between this world and the otherworldly environments, was something that was present at the Kezem Cave 400,000 years ago. And I think that, you know, they were communicating with intelligences that unquestionably were also linked with that holy mountain and whatever was going on there. And that the whole thing became like this symbiotic relationship that they could enter otherworldly environments, communicate with intelligences that they saw as benefiting their community by allowing them to be innovative in different areas of their life and allowing them to pull forward much faster than many of their neighbors you know not just in the levant but also in other parts of the ancient world yeah. it's interesting you were talking about you know going back to we were talking about portals and kind of areas that seem to have um uh kind of this sort of plasma uh, this kind of spiritual effect if you want to call it that but i was thinking of uh, alexandra david neal in tibet and uh, the whole tulpa phenomena which is very similar yeah. in, in form to the egregore kind of thing exactly do you think yeah. that this could be um 
also explained using this kind of N, uh, N theory yeah. kind of... Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think what's happening is that you can manipulate uh, subtle matter on a quantum level and that it's almost like through entanglement you can exchange some kind of consciousness, some kind of uh, connection, and that this in many ways allows it to exist, basically. And sorry, my phone's going to stop it off. Um, and so, in other words, you can almost pump it up. You can pump up its intelligence. But once this actually occurs, I think that there's a possibility that even more intelligent beings can inhabit that same space. So in other words, when you are communicating with, you know, a, what you might see as a spirit of the landscape or a, a spirit of a mountain or, you know, a, sham, a shamanic animal, that you aren't simply connecting with a tulpa or an egregore. What you're connecting with is another intelligence that's occupying that space and taking over that personality for its own uses. And the way that I, um, that I, I sort of, uh, you know, sort of try and explain this is if you think of the Matrix film, the idea of, you know, the agents taking over the bodies of individuals so that they can, you know, do their own thing. If you can imagine all the people in the Matrix film as spirits of the landscape, then the agents are your M-beings, if you like. In other words, they can take over. So if you go to some waterfall that's supposedly haunted by a, a white lady, you know, you might see that white lady, you might communicate with her, and there is every possibility that that communication on occasions could actually be far more than simply you speaking to some local spirit. Um, you could be connecting with a much higher consciousness or intelligence that is actually just using that archetype to connect with you in some way. Do you now think that um, that the the stuff that you were writing about in From the Ashes of Angels, one of my favourite books, um, w again, there's sort of mountainous kind of elements to that, the mountains of the Yazidi and uh, so forth. Do you think now that that they were the Melek Taos and so forth, uh, that they were encountering these end beings in some form? Well, I think that, I mean, obviously for those uh, listeners that are not aware of that book, I mean, from the Ashes of Angels I wrote in 1995, it was published in 1996, and basically what it suggested was that the Watchers and the Nephilim of the Book of Enoch and, you know, Judaic Hebrew um, literature was a memory of a a much earlier um, culture or population of people that had kick-started civilization uh, somewhere in southeast or eastern Anatolia at the end of the last ice age, maybe let's say 9,000 BC. I think it was probably one day that I gave. And that these same mythical, semi-mythical beings were also recorded in Sumerian myth under the name the, the Anunnaki. Um, and you know, I pointed out lots of evidence and, and that was that. What I didn't realise at the same time that I was writing that book, Gebekli Tepe was being discovered in 
you know, not exactly the same area, but very close to where I was, you know, uh, talking about. And the Gebekli Tepe really becomes almost like a smoking gun of a lost civilization. And since then, many other sites of that same extremely high culture have been discovered in southeast Anatolia, which proves that there existed there a civilization, the ancients, ancients, and very clearly that's what I was talking about. Um, but coming back to what you said, quite clearly, if these entities exist, these egregores, they're everywhere. I mean, you know, or certainly everywhere that you have a portal location and somewhere like the um, the, the Taurus Mountains, um, or the so-called anti-Taurus Mountains, which is where, where Gebekli Tepe is, um, this is somewhere where UFOs and mysterious lights have been sighted. Also, a geophysical uh, survey was done at Gebekli Tepe that actually found extreme geomagnetic anomalies there. So it may well be that the site was placed there because it was on, if you like, a portal location. Um, and the, the people there did this on purpose and that the shamanic activity that was unquestionably taking place there was to communicate with these higher intelligences, you know, end beings, as we would like to call them today. So, yeah, of course. But then, of course, you, you have to say, well, what happened after that? Well, what happened after that is that the people from Gebekli Tepe eventually left that area of southeast Anatolia and moved down through the Levant and eventually end up in Egypt. And there they remain, um, you know, obviously with their descendants taken over for thousands of years, you know, keeping the communication with the Levant as far north as places like Haran and Shanlurfa, uh, very close to Gebekli Tepe. And then eventually, of course, these become the forerunners of the creators of the pyramids, you know, the pyramid builders. So is it possible that a lot of the ideas that were present at Gebekli Tepe end up in the mathematics, the geometry, the precision design of something like the Great Pyramid? And I think the answer is yes. But I don't think it's just a case of the architect suddenly getting some clever ideas about geometry and mathematics one day and thinking that, you know, he or she will, you know, incorporate this into the design. I think that they were in genuinely inspired to create the Great Pyramid. I mean, in the 19th century, it was believed that those who created the Great Pyramid were divinely inspired, literally by God himself. Now, I don't necessarily think that it was God that was inspiring them. I think that it may well have been transdimensional beings and beings, you know, these type of higher intelligences were deliberately making the architect incorporate certain things which they didn't know what the hell they were actually putting into it within the dead dimensions, the shape, the proportions, everything. I don't think they fully understood what they were doing and that in many ways what's been left there is a, is something for us, is, is something for the modern age and the future age. I mean, there's no question that something like the Great Pyramid will exist probably forever. I mean, certainly for, for many thousands of years perhaps even tens of thousands of years. So that as a symbol of humanity, when that person, that architect created that, 
you think how important you know the creating the right design was and i think that there was every opportunity for a higher intelligence to inspire that person to create the design that we see today and you know i don't think this is an unreasonable suggestion and obviously the skeptics always say well you know what about the second pyramid what about the third pyramid at giza what about the ones at dashur you know why haven't they got the same type of mathematics well because we all focus on the great pyramid and always will do so in other words that's the place that you will always look for these these almost cosmological values if you like that are important to do with science to do with mathematics to do with geometry and our connection with you know quite literally the the otherworldly beings if you like i mean i know this all sounds a little bit you know ancient astronaut or ancient aliens but i i think we have to at least consider these possibilities well thanks so much for giving us so much of your time and i know we ran a little bit late so sorry about that but uh, i was wondering could you let us know kind of what you have coming up what you know what else you're working on it'd be great to you know hear what you've got coming up sure yeah um well i mean everything you need to know is on my website andrewcollins.com um, all my social media links, um, various articles that I've put up there, uh, including a breakdown of everything that's in uh, Origins of the Gods. Um, I should be appearing at a big Gaia um, event in Colorado in September uh, alongside uh, various other, um, you know, people of, of this field. Um, so, you know, by all means come along to that. Um, otherwise, myself and Hugh Newman, my colleague, uh, and his company Megalithomania do tours out to Egypt and Turkey. Details of those on the site next one in uh, May 2023. Um, and yeah, that's it really. I mean, you know, for me, it's just about finding the truth. Um, I just want to tell people about it. That's why I write the books. That's why I research constantly. That's why I've dedicated my life over to it. So, you know, if you feel in a similar way and you want to communicate with me by email, uh, there's a link on the website and just press that and um, I'd love to hear from you. That's brilliant. Thanks so much. Yeah. And thanks. Carry on writing because we love reading it. Brilliant. We haven't even touched the Black Alchemist where it all started no, for haven't. us. But, so, uh, <laughs> that's that's another, another, another time. Yeah. Yeah. And we are back. So what did you think about our conversation with Mr. Collins? There's there's a lot. And Okay, we started with uh, Kiel, and I think one of the really fascinating thing that, things that's emerging at the moment is this sort of re-overlapping of lots of these subjects. And so this sort of the UFOs, the plasma balls, uh, sacred spaces, sort of re-acknowledging that, that these things happen at these locations. And yeah, I mean, there was... There was a lot. There was a lot in there that barely scratched the surface. And I mean, there's so much going on in that book. It's so yeah. multifaceted. Yeah, it felt that like we had to sort of zero in on one particular area because yeah, it's, there's a lot of information in the book. And um, but I guess we're a, a podcast that deals a lot with the occult and with the more kind of you know supernaturally side of things. So they kind of felt more that we should drill into that section of the of the book. I think. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Collins is undoubtedly a uh, an expert on the sort of the 
the alternate is it alternate archaeology is that is that the term the the sort of the i don't really want to say alternate history but this sort of redigging outside the shackles of uh, academia of all of these sort of ancient locations and that is definitely one of his specialist areas but it was really good to sort of home in on something which doesn't ever seem to get tackled too deeply and that is kind of in part the nature of the entities or whatever that might be behind these phenomena and how they've come to sort of interact with us. Fascinating. Um, I thought it was really interesting that he's the second guest we've had on that's kind of brought up this interdimensionality as well between, you know, kind of occult practices and, yeah, and yeah. extraterrestrials or ultra-terrestrials, as you know, um, he refers to it in the book, which, again, is another John Keel link. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's strange. Keel feels like he's having a real... It's a bit like Kenneth Grant, actually. He feels like he's having a real revival at the moment. I keep sort of seeing his name pop up all over the place <laughs> again. It's a bit like Kenneth Grant. It's like one of these characters. Whenever I talk, whenever we talk about the occult, we talk about Kenneth Grant now on the show. And then whenever we talk about more kind of, I guess, paranormal kind of... Uh, um, you know, topics. It, Keel always comes up. It's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, some of these people have just been extremely insightful or um, inspired researchers, and they've come out with at times what seemed like outlandish ideas. But they've they've put ideas into other researchers' minds, and researchers have gone away, and then one or two generations later, out comes information that starts feeding back into those uh, those original seemingly out there ideas and i guess the out, the outrageous ideas of the past become sort of increasingly plausible as our world itself becomes more outrageous yeah definitely anyway it was great to have mr collins on and we're definitely going to have to have him uh, back on i think at some point that would be wonderful yeah because I mean, there's so many areas of him we can go into and Absolutely. yeah yeah i mean we we briefly mentioned a, a couple of books in there uh, which was the one you were talking about uh from the ashes of angels that was yeah. that was uh yeah one i got a long time ago and yeah just a fascinating sort of story of the watchers and the gregory and uh, enoch and his ascension to heaven i wish that sounds like a show a show in itself maybe we should uh i'm not sure we want to no, it's actually he seemed quite happy to talk about it so anyway but yeah it'd be great to have him back on anyway if you want to get in contact with us uh it's at sitting now on uh instagram and twitter uh and youtube uh so you can find us on all three of those um uh, we're not really doing Facebook. I, I need to sort of maybe look at Facebook. I keep saying I might look at it, but but they're the best ways of uh, of keeping in touch with us. And obviously on the website, sittingnow.co.uk. Um, if you are a listener listening on YouTube, uh, hit the subscribe button. We're like 20-something people away from 1,000 now. I'm begging now. I'm begging. It's sad. It's it's sad, <laughs> Ulysses. I, I'm, All yeah. right, I'll do it. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, uh, we will be back next week. Um, it's one of two guests. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. But, uh, sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's very esoteric. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.